Today's program is brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. Hi, this is Katie Kiefer from What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Episode 175 of The Morning After. I am your host, Sari Gaiman. I'm your other host, Leslie Stockton. And today in the, on the, in the studio, we have Klaus Meyer, pioneer of New Nordic Cuisine. That's exciting. But first, food yes. news. Yes, some food news. I want to hear it. Okay, we've, we've got some good stories this week. Uh, Leslie, you're a cat owner, yes. Crazy cat lady. Okay, I think yeah. this one will, will resonate with you. And um, what's your cat's name? Chewy. Chewy. Some mm-hmm. good news for Chewy. Non-alcoholic wine for cats has <laughs> finally hit the United States. <laughs> finally. You, you don't have a cat, you say. Is that right, Klaus? No, I have a couple of dogs and, and uh, a bunch of squirrels. A bunch of squirrels. <laughs> the squirrels as, might As people it. do who live in Europe. <laughs> um, okay, so this is great for crazy cat Owners, not saying that you are one of them, Leslie, but I have my moments in the future, just in case you decide to go that route. We support you. And if you are perchance drinking wine and wishing that your furry feline friend could could partake with you now, he or she can. Okay, so there's this there's this Denver company that has created this non-alcoholic wine for cats. And the best part of this is they're not the first company to do it. They had this idea, they came up with it, they looked into it, and it already exists in Japan, of course. Of course in Japan, but can we back the train up really yes. quick? Why? What's the elevator pitch? Like, why? No, 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 I'll get there. Oh, okay. okay, sorry. So they sorry. looked into it, they were like, I'm going to make non-alcoholic wine for cats. But there's this company in Japan that makes it for cats, except that theirs is, is colored with actual grapes, which apparently are toxic for cats. So already exists in Japan, but could potentially kill them. So this company was like, we're not going to do that. We're going to instead color the wine with beets, which are not toxic for cats, but it's made with catnip. So that's that's the thing. So oh. your cat is like basically chugging Scissor. LSD. This is kitty scissor. liquid. Yeah. 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 So might as well float a Jolly like, Rancher in there. This is for loco for cats. <laughs> Is, is basically what it is. So, I, I mean, I think it's brilliant. I don't have a cat, but I'm, I might try it myself. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, uh, I don't know. Okay. You think about <laughs> it. You let us know. Okay. Uh, <laughs> next up, according to the police, a woman dropped kicked a birthday cake in Kroger. Yes. In Kroger. This is what I want to hear. This is, I wait, I, I wait for this stuff. I know. I know. This was it a full sheet cake? Does was it even it a matter? Do I even have to read anymore? <laughs> no, but I want to know how big it was. Was it a nine-inch <laughs> round? With, with our grocery chain Kroger, Klaus? No. You're really missing out. It's a super high-end grocery store. <laughs> just kidding. It's it's not. It's just your average um, yeah, Joe. Yeah. So apparently this happened. Oh, God. I don't even know where this happened. Like, probably Indiana or something. So a woman went in to pick up her birthday cake for her child's birthday, which was supposed to be Superman and Batman. But they didn't do that well, and she was really really mad, so she tried to get behind 
the counter and like fix it herself and they were like no Whoa. no you, Whoa. you can't fix the birthday cake yourself lady <laughs> grabbing piping pads <laughs> yeah she was like i'll draw superman versus batman wow. and they were like no and she got so heated that she took the cake she she yelled an expletive wow. something like they beep ruined my seven-year-old's birthday cake and dropped kicked the cake that lady needs some icing went everywhere. Med- meditation classes. Yeah, she she thing. got out of there. The police were able to track her since she'd ordered the cake, so her <laughs> phone number and her address were listed. <laughs> they tracked her down, and she was like, "Oh, I didn't drop kick that cake. It accidentally slipped out of my hand." That was her defense. The investigation is pending. Okay, so first of all. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is a great intramural sport that needs to start. Drop kicking cakes. Yes. I like it. Mm-hmm. It's it's not as violent as football. It's not as violent as football. And since cake isn't really like actual food, uh-huh. you know, it wouldn't, doesn't seem like that wasteful. I think that's a really good idea. Do you see that being incorporated into the new Nordic Cuisine Manifesto, Klaus Meyer? <laughs> not yet. Not yet. But maybe by maybe. the end of the show. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. You heard it here first. Okay. Last and probably least... A bread truck crashed into a deli meat truck in New Jersey, and then a New Jersey highway was then covered in sandwiches. <laughs> Isn't this, like, the best thing that's ever happened in New Jersey? Like, this is the best thing that could have ever happened to New Jersey. A bread truck crashed into a meat truck. <laughs> like, of all the trucks that could crash into each other. It's like God swooped down on New Jersey and is like, I just want one good thing to happen to this state. And just and like made it rain. Like it made it with, rain with sandwiches. <laughs> like I don't even know. Like that's the whole story. You know, like there's a picture. Do you see this, Klaus? Yeah, Isn't this beautiful? <laughs> it's just like a highway covered in bread and meat. <laughs> oh god. It's just a beautiful thing. I mean, Chris Christie, like he couldn't have planned it any better. Oh man. I bet I his ratings are soaring. I bet this, he's taking credit for it. Oh, his his poll numbers are way up and this completely this cancels is what out needed. Bridgegate. Yes, you're right. You're right. And this the this is not the first time that such a serendipitous food pairing crash has taken place. Um another time, I don't think this was in New Jersey, but earlier this year a beer truck crashed into a truck full of Doritos. <laughs> in Florida. <laughs> Which is perfect to happen to Florida, which is, you know, like the ultimate tailgate party happened on the streets. Um, but this is really good. We're really happy for New Florida Jersey. Florida needs need, need something. <laughs> need something, yeah. They really do. N- no injuries. Good. No injuries. You know, no one got hurt. Just Hopefully lots of people like got to eat sandwiches for free. It's just like a, some really happy news. We needed that. I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm into that. And I'm so glad that you actually managed to fit Japan in. I know. It wouldn't be food news like, without oh, Japan. Around that around way. way. Yeah. yeah. I'm into it. It was a great week for food. Great. All right. We're going to take a break. We'll be back with Klaus Meyer. Keep it locked. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com.
We're back. You're listening to The Morning After on Heritage Radio Network. Klaus Meyer is the author of 14 cookbooks. He is a chef, a TV host, a culinary entrepreneur. He's a food activist and a co-owner of a little restaurant in Copenhagen known as Noma. He is the person who is most credited with starting the new Nordic cuisine movement and philosophy. His newest project, the the Nordic restaurant Egern, is now open in Grand Central Terminal. Welcome to the show, Klaus Meyer. Thanks so much. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Truly, we are totally baffled that you're here. You have like 7,000 different things going on, and you still managed to make it to Bushwick today. It's pretty impressive. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Maybe not 7,000, but maybe... 50. Well, <laughs> somewhere between 50 and 7,000. Uh, first of all, we mentioned in, in the little intro that you were the co-founder and co-owner of Noma in Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to ask right away just to kind of like figure it out. Noma closed and then it reopened in Australia for a while. And then rumor on the street was that Noma in its current incarnation was, was done. And it was going to reopen as a vegetarian restaurant, but it seems that is not the case. Can you just no. can you set the record straight? Yeah. So, yeah. so for the second time in, in a couple of years, we have decided to move the whole staff to a different country. First it was Japan. This year it was Australia. And then the idea is that um, at somehow the project finances everything, the journey, the work. So we would come back with money as if we had been running the restaurant at the same time. So this year, while Noma was closed, it actually we, opened, we reopened a bistro that we are launching in a couple of months. So this bistro kind of tested its concept in the Noma space, adapted a little bit to that context with some more cool tables like here, a little bit less sophisticated interior. Um, otherwise, Noma is back uh, for something that looks like maybe one year from now until... Uh, it closes in in its current location and um, and reopens in a totally different space, not too far away. Oh, so that so that is actually happening. It's just that, that we got the timing wrong. Yeah, it kind of it kind of opens up in a new, more kind of farm like urban farm like uh, space. Uh, and is it going to be all vegetarian? Is that true? No, there will be kind of distinct periods where the food will. There will be one period during summer where vegetables will be the predominant element on the menu, and then there will be another period for game, hmm. and a third period where shellfish and things from the ocean dominate the menu. Oh, okay. So I'm glad we got that straight. <laughs> and this is with seasons? I, I, so the vegetables it's might a bit dominate more extreme, the summer? A slightly more extreme take on the seasons. So instead of using a lot of vegetables all year round, what has been the case in the Nordic cuisine so far, we have kind of... For us, uh, we have treated everything from the plant kingdom as as kind of with a, with a, as much attention that other people would would treat a, a, a very expensive uh, lobster or piece of beef or four gras truffles. So we said, well, what, what if you treat beetroots like other people would treat truffles? Maybe beetroot could be like a, as as beautiful, as sophisticated, as out of this world as uh, some of the more expensive food stuff in the world. Yeah. So, so the idea is now that, that we say, instead of just doing all, a lot of vegetables all year round and then really fighting with it in February, yeah. I was okay, February, maybe don't eat very many vegetables, but then maybe eat a lot of fish, a lot of shellfish. That is kind of the idea. And it's Rene's idea, and I think it's, it's, it's pretty intellectual. And, um, I mean, with, with, with a position as, as number one in the world, and you are packed you know, half a year ahead all the time, it is meaningful, and all, you almost have an obligation to kind of stretch it and stretch yourself to, to kind of do something more extreme. Sure. So 
I mean, what you're kind of alluding to sort of seems to touch into the the heart of what the new Nordic cuisine philosophy is. But like for the purpose of just the rest of our conversation, can you kind of lay out to us, you know, in your words, like what is the new Nordic cuisine? What does that mean? Mm, so, so it was kind of some sort of uh, food cultural nirvana um, that we dreamt up back in 2003 by simply asking ourselves a question after having been growing up in a food desert, if Scandinavia, if the Nordic cuisine, the Nordic food culture one day should be counted amongst the most delicious and wonderful and, uh, and admirable food cultures in the world, what would it take to get there? Which values should we lean on in this process of transformation and how should we collaborate around it? So basically the Nordic cuisine movement was about answering what it takes to be a great food culture these days because definitely everybody knows that France has had a, the hegemony of the world of food for many, many decades. But the question is whether France or even Spain in 2003 um, kind of addressed uh, or responded to all the fears and anxieties and um, emotions that we can have around food. So, so we, we kind of built in to this manifesto that we wrote with the chefs that, um, first of all, that the chef has to stand up for something larger than deliciousness and the profit of his restaurant and take a responsibility and be a role model like musicians and rock stars had been 10, 15 years ago with Bono as a very good example. Also, we said that, that maybe a chef, as an example, would have to build a way of cooking that would combine deliciousness and healthiness. Fine dining has a responsibility because it's being copied and it's source of inspiration for so many other cooks. So now we said fine dining can be about, uh, about healthiness also. And we think any chef has to defend biodiversity. A, a great food culture defends biodiversity, amplifies it. Um, another value, basically it was 10, 10 values. It was an ideology. Uh, another one was about the concept of partnering, the concept of open source, that uh, no matter what anyone has done, no, no matter your, the, the misdeeds of some kind of wicked, visit, what do you call bad, what do you call evil, evil, huge uh, dairy company or brewery or whatever, no matter, no matter the misdeeds of the past, um, you have to look upon the potential for doing something great together in the future. So uh, a deep sense of partnership, of inclusion and of some sort of open source sharing of ideas and knowledge also made this transition happen extremely fast. So the Roy Cuisine Manifesto was a kind of a guiding light and the movement was this uh, dissemination of those ideas into the lives and hands of a lot of people. And then eventually we build in some very informal way, almost like a virtual brand without ownership. Nobody owned the brand. We all contributed to it. Um, when you did put together this manifesto with the 11 other chefs uh did you have any idea how it, it would just explode and become this stratospheric worldwide acceptance of hyper locavore forging yeah this is exactly what it became you're totally yeah. right so but we didn't no we did we did what we did believe was that actually timing was great because people were becoming a little bit fed up with this hyper-molecular gastronomy um, thing that was going on in Spain with El Bulli as the, the cornerstone or epicenter of that. And it was a little bit uh, almost vulgar in a world where other people would be thinking, about, oh my God, we, in 30 years we can't even feed the, the people on the planet and maybe the ecosystems are breaking down and the people are suffering from hunger and poverty. So 
And then the, these chefs were just playing around with food, lending some chemicals from the industry and making a form that nobody had seen before. So we, we felt that timing was really great for, for reconnecting cooking with nature, also at the level of fine dining. Uh, but we didn't even see that um, the phrases we, we wrote had a universal dimension. We thought this was only about us. But what we learned down the road was that um, the manifesto was rather about uh, any food culture's aim to defend its roots or become unique, uh, or, or any regional or local cuisines attempt to be, be something in, in, in a very global world. So, but we didn't see it. No, we didn't see it. How, how does it look to you now? I mean, down the line, it's been over a decade, and clearly your ideas have resonated on a, on a global level. Like, what does the world look like to you, and how are you able to sort of identify the impact that the Nordic uh, Manifesto has had on just the overall culinary landscape? I don't think that I really go around trying to assess it. I, I can just... I'm, I'm very happy that those ideas that we had kind of... Um, has helped empowering a lot of uh, if not powerless people but then a lot of struggling communities and a lot of under under um, invested or under emphasized food culture so now if you are a young cook in, in Cyprus or in Albania or in Bolivia you, you may grow up with the, the, the dream and the thought that maybe you could become a great chef maybe if you collaborated with your fellows in that place on earth and kind of explored your uh, unique possibilities that place maybe you could find a voice a tone of voice in your cooking or something to strive for that would make you shine and get a moment of be, be on the top of the world not to be just to be celebrated and to win accolades but to use that attention to benefit the place you come from well, and that, I think that is wonderful that no, you don't have to grow up in France and be trained in a three-star Michelin restaurant in Paris or Burgundy to become something in the world of food. Sure. Yeah, but how do you feel, you know, when, when you think about Nordic cuisine as being like such, a, such an identifiable trend? Like when you walk around Brooklyn where we are now and you see a menu that says, you know, oh, I foraged this ingredient or the chef went out into the, the streets of Bushwick and, and captured like the local flora and fauna and that's what we're serving tonight. Does that feel, does that feel good to you? Does that no, feel like, I, don't, okay. I don't feel anything. <laughs> I, I don't feel anything. I don't, also, we should be careful yeah. with uh, attributing everything to the Nordic cuisine. Of course, this idea, also because, I mean, we happen to make a restaurant that happened to suddenly become the best in the world, which was not only due to those ideas, but also to the execution and the way, to, the way in which René and his team actually um, executed this idea in one single restaurant. So it was a lot of luck also. We cannot just plan to go out and open the best restaurant in the world. That's not possible. But, but René and his team did something phenomenal out of this world. So you had the manifesto and you also had an execution in one restaurant. And the synergy between those two was amazing. But for me, it doesn't make sense to, to try to take the credit for some Brooklyn chef foraging with his wife or whatever's going on. So I just, I just like the idea that, that because foraging is a way of democratizing access to great flavors. Because the beautiful thing about wild stuff is that it's for free. But mm -hmm. you have to have the time to get it. And you have to have the knowledge to, to, I mean, to, to, to get the right stuff. To and identify not, it. Yeah, yeah. So I think it, it kind of democratizes access to great meals. Before, you had maybe the feeling that this is about truffles and foreground caviar and some very exclusive temples. Now, and Brooklyn is a very good example of that, of course, as is East Village, that uh, the most phenomenal meals 
can be found anywhere. Mm-hmm. Knowing what to pick and knowing where to go, to where to go has the fact that we are so, we have become so far removed from it um, is the unnatural part, right? I mean, we're getting back to how yeah, our ancestors be an thing to go fed out themselves. Feed you know what's available. So you have so many different projects happening simultaneously. It feels so many of them in New York City. We want to try and learn a little bit about all of them. Um, so right now you have Egan, which I'm completely botching the name. Uh, so that's open in Grand Central. And then you have the Northern Food Hall. That's also about to be open. Yeah, we're, actually, we're actually opening up a little bit now. But okay. the real opening is the 27th. Yeah. In, so in I, one week. But I want to learn more. We have to train a little bit to practice. That's mm-hmm. exciting. Right. So right off the bat, I just I have a question because both of those are Nordic cuisine. Yeah. You can say so, but I, I like also to, yeah, it is definitely an expression of our roots and our history and, and whatever I bring to the city. But, but we call it New York Nordic because it is also very much about where we are and, 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 and all the ingredients are from here. Okay, but, so but that was my question. Yeah, right. but, like how do you take, how do you translate Nordic cuisine if you're not, if you're not using that like hyper local seasonal um, mentality, mm, but you're not using right. Nordic ingredients, if you can't, you can't do that. So if the only thing we, we, I mean, it is exactly like you say. And then in addition to that, also because somehow I think it's also an immigrant story. Mm. So it's also about when you come to New York, a place where a lot of people have immig- have migrated to. I also think it makes sense to to, to think, okay, if if Gunnar, the Icelandic head chef, brings some dried seaweed that can make him recreate a broth. That reminds him of his childhood. I think it makes sense. Not because it, it is connected us to the landscapes of New York, but because there are human beings involved in the project and they have a history they bring to the table. And you can't forget the history and just say, oh, it's about the wheat that grows outside my door. So also Gunnar's history is part of the picture and part of what you want to you wanna live if you come there. You want to feel that he's from Iceland and not some random chef who just picked somewhere. As well as my vinegars that I've brought in the studio because of some other journalists who I don't know what's going on. <laughs> but, but, but also the vinegars that I have carefully been producing during the last 15 years, some of them have aged you know, for, for more than a decade. Um, so they also travel very well. And for me, it is quintessential. But apart from those very few products that travel well, it is more the flavors and the, and the culinary ideas the way to make an open face sandwich, the way we compose a salad, our flatbreads on a very crispy, thin, 30% whole grain bread that you would normally never do here in America. It'll be totally white, that bread. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's more some subtle ideas. I, suppose, but yeah, I, I hope, I want to, also because we are in the Vanderbilt Hall in Grand Central Terminal, it's not any random warehouse. So I don't think we can just come in and then just come in with the Viking helmets and, and claim the land. I wish you would. Uh, we come from the land of the ice and snow. <laughs> <laughs> why, why are you here? It's a, it's a coincidence, you know. Um, sometimes destiny... Well, I mean, clearly it's it's not just a coincidence. You now have a, a bakery open, you have a restaurant open, you're opening a food hall, you have a cooking school and another restaurant opening in Brooklyn. No, but is, I, I didn't write a business plan. Okay, so, uh, but I mean, clearly uh, something drew you here, something, you away uh, from Copenhagen. And, and um, Yeah, I mean, at the age of 50, you, you, you ask yourself, are you going to do this thing in the same place you'll be doing it forever, another 20 years? Or do you want to try something else? And And... My, with my family, we were we were tempted by the idea of trying to live somewhere else, and all my girls were in love with New York, um, and um, and then this opportunity to open up um, in this phenomenal 
iconic space uh, suddenly um, was in front of my eyes. And then I just decided to go for it with, with an American business partner who also wanted to see this happening. And then eventually we just won the bid. And, 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 and now we decided to move here for a couple of years at least. And you know, maybe we end up in America. I don't know. And, and, and I just want to get the best out of it. And I like the concept of going all in. And, um, and, and, and that's why I'm doing a number of things in, in America while I'm here. Yeah, because you've, you've conquered Denmark. I don't know if I've conquered Denmark, but I've served Denmark. I like to see it as I've been serving Denmark. Also, if somebody calls me an emperor here, I, I, I don't like it very much because, first of all, um, I definitely have, <laughs> I haven't conquered anything at this point. But also, it's more for me kind of a fireworks. I want to I leave this world. I want to leave this country one day with the feeling that it, make, that, that it benefited people that I was there. And, 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 and the, the concept of conquering something is a little bit different. Sure. Um, How's New York been treating you so far? I, I have been treated extremely well by, by, by the industry. I have, you know, a lot of chefs and restaurateurs. I mean, Mario Batali, Dan Barber, Mass Freshlon, um, um, David Barber, um, Per se, I mean, all the chefs who contributed to the kids' table, for instance, so many people have been extremely kind and helpful. Um, John Ratliff, the butcher from Men's Meat in uh, Sunset, uh, Industry City. I mean, so many people have been so helpful. On the other hand, I think it's, it's, uh, it's a tough place to... Maybe I would have been doing a little bit less if I knew how tough it would be to, to, to gather a team and to deal with the... With the MTA and the Landmark <laughs> Commission and uh, the building permits and um, all that stuff. It's hard to get anything done here. It's very hard. It's so hard. More than I ever expected. Yeah. But so, people, are, I mean, people in the street are extremely friendly, so it feels like a, like a gift to you know, send the kids to school in the morning. And so we, we really enjoy living here. Yeah, it's 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 great whenever, you know, you just you get the shit together and you don't just, panic panic about that. You can't panic about it and every time you're like, Okay, this is how I grow and it's gonna hurt. <laughs> so okay, so starting with the two projects that are open open in Grand Central Terminal, um, I'd love to hear I understand that Egon is is a fine dining restaurant, and then I don't know too much about the Northern Food Hall. Fine dining without yeah, with a kind of informal upscale, but yeah, somebody I think people who go there have, a, have difficulties finding out whether it's fine dining or just a, a very sophisticated, informal way of sharing a meal together. But, but it's fair to call it uh, a little bit uh, elevated. Well, I only know what I've read yeah. or what's been reported. But um, I've, I guess I'm curious, like with those two specific projects, what are you hoping to teach New Yorkers about Nordic cuisine? Like what's the expectation that bringing what you know from, from Denmark and Scandinavia over here, what, what do you want to most share? Uh, my love for bread, uh, our bread philosophy, where we have found a way of making 100% organic bread with a lot of whole grains, even in the wheat bread. Also, we have, of course, a whole, 100% whole grain rye bread, only rye, no wheat. So kind of the idea of eating the whole grain, and, and we have kind of found a way to add pretty much water to the dough. So even though it contains that much whole grain that we grind freshly in the bakery every single day, so it doesn't get rancid. Uh, by adding all that water and, and finding a way of having that absorbed in the dough, you, you end up with a moist bread that is crisp on the outside, moist on the inside, uh, and has a deep flavor of grain. So that is one thing, and everything that goes with, that, with, with those breads. Otherwise, I would say it's, it's, um, it's our love, of, uh, of love for vegetables. 
and and all and the bright flavor. I think generally the Nordic cuisine has a bright, light, fresh uh, flavor with uh, many raw ingredients. You know, we, we really care about the level of acidity in the food. Um, yeah, that's kind of it when it comes to the flavor. Then we, I, I dream of creating a very friendly uh, food hall that just gives you a great moment when you buy your coffee or buy your little sandwich or whatever you're going to buy. Um, well, do you mind if I ask where your grain, where you get, where you get your grain from? So until this point, um, we have partly imported some of the, the signature grains we've been using in Denmark, namely a 17% protein. Uh, rye called um, Svedjeru and a wheat uh, with a lot of flavor and a very very good gluten structure that is called Erland wheat an old Swedish uh, seed that may have been the grain that Swedish people brought to America 300 years ago and and, and in addition to that uh, just to get started uh, we have now planted uh, rye and wheat fields with these two varieties after having tested them um, in a university in Maine. So now this this awesome in Connecticut and Maine, we are harvesting rye and, and um, wheat. So that's another way of, of kind of remembering who you are and, and where you come from by growing our own seeds in American soil. So it's an American product, but it also has to do with who we are. So the the grain grown in American soil, does it does it have a different flavor because of the terroir, or is, is it pretty much does it behave the same? It kind of behaves the same. Yeah. And, and the funny thing is that the, whatever grows in Scandinavia, I mean, the southern part of Scandinavia, southern Sweden, Denmark, it kind of grows here. So, so there's a big resemblance between the, the climate and the soil and, and what you can get in northern America and in, in northern Europe. Let's talk about some of your other projects. Yeah, I'd like to pivot to, um, I, I would really love to pivot to this Brownsville, Brooklyn um, restaurant and uh, school that you are putting in an old 99 cent store. Hmm. Uh, could you just tell us, you know, who are you serving? What, you know, uh, What's what the is overall your mission? Concept? Yeah. 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 So I, f- I started the Melting Pot Foundation in 2010 because I wanted to give something back uh, explicitly. Not that we do bad things within the company, uh, but here I wanted to do something really good for people to whom I, I didn't know anything. And, and we did two main projects. One was to, to create food schools in Danish state prisons in collaboration with the prison service. And the other one was to try to, to give the Nordic cuisine movement and Noma away as an idea in Bolivia, in La Paz. So we created a, another food school there, which happened to be a fine dining restaurant in the end. And at the same time, a social project is called Gusto. Coming to America, I met a young man uh, two years ago in a queue in front of uh, the Brooklynish bakery called Scratch Bread. And this guy, Lucas Denton, who, who lived in bed and still lives in bed uh, happened, happened to have been uh, walking a lot around in Brownsville because he was doing some gentrification studies for the New York City's Division of Human Rights. And... Um, and basically, he was, he was the one who inspired me to, to do what we're now doing in Brownsville. So what we're doing out there is a, another food school that's seen from the perspective of the community is a, a bakery and a restaurant. Uh, and we are employing within, before October, something like 40 youngsters from Brooklyn, girls and boys, 
most of them from Brownsville, obviously. And, and the idea is basically to, to collaborate with them around the idea of opening this bakery and this restaurant and get the best out of it and transfer everything we know about cooking and entrepreneurship into their hands and, and, and see how we can, I mean, explore how we can impact the community outside the walls of the restaurant. But the restaurant is for the citizens of, of, of Brownsville. I mean, if somebody comes from Bushwick, he or she will, of course, be invited to have a table and, and you know, get a meal. But, but it is really to bring uh, a real restaurant to Brownsville. It doesn't exist out there right now, only fast food. And that's so over 75,000 people, no sit-down restaurant, no table service restaurant, exist in Brownsville. As for the food itself, we wanna, we, we are, we're going to investigate what soul food could otherwise look like. That was my next question because you know when when you do approach an underserved community, uh, preserving culture and being respectful of that culture is always like forefront in the conversation and what people think. So that is a very important thing that you just brought up. So so we have been doing, for instance, we've been doing for more than a year studies in in a couple of senior centers. One is the Van Dyke Center where we have uh, sitting down with, with old men and women from the community and ask them about um, their culinary memories, writing them down, even cooking some of the food. And also I've been out there with a the team uh, cooking for the people in that senior center. <laughs> that was a pretty amazing experience. And I was very scared because here I came with my version of, of oxtails, with, uh, not with Kali Lu, but with uh, a raw, vibrant uh, kale salsa, and some crispy kale leaves I dried overnight in an oven, and I was afraid they would just spit in my face. But I had <laughs> yeah. to see how they would react upon the idea of some white uh, lunatic coming to this place and then cooking for them for lunch. I'd be terrified if I were you. I was a little bit scared because it was kind of, I, I held in my hand during that moment the whole destiny of the project because the whole idea was that I, I should be, I mean, I wanted to allow myself to give my approach to what that food could look like, Kalilu. Could you do something else to kale than cooking, cooking in one and a half hours in water without offending anyone? Mm -hmm. and, and they embraced it so wonderfully. And I, I was in tears that afternoon because they were so friendly and so, so inclusive I get, towards me. And they, they didn't even understand the project we were doing with the kids. But, but for me, that was a symbol of openness and, and friendliness and um, anything more than I could ever have expected. So the whole idea is to kind of lend to this team of young future cooks everything we know about deliciousness, everything we know about what could be considered as great. If they then end up triple frying their chicken legs, then it's fine with us. We just want to show them that there could be other things. Maybe you could combine a little bit less triple fried something and some more vegetables. So because the point that, is to, cr to create... A more healthy. A more healthy. Yeah, but yeah. without without that seeming like an assault. Exactly. Or, uh, well, or some, clearly, that's the challenge because th th we want them. We basically want yeah. them to, to, to. We want them to be passionate about cooking something that relates to their roots, but also uh, is something they really want to share with their community, their cousins and brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. We want the youngsters to sell this idea. Uh, so we have to find a way together to be passionate about it. Um, and, and, and I'm so happy that unlike Bolivia, where it made sense to, to make a fine dining project, this is no way about fine dining. Yeah. This is basically an, an upscale cafeteria. You cannot open a fine dining no, restaurant. No, it wouldn't make desert. sense for tourists. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine what the, that goes, what that flash it goes very well in Bolivia, but it wouldn't. I mean, of course, it doesn't work sure. here. So, 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 and then we just stay, and you ask me, and I, I'm happy to tell you about it. But otherwise, we don't go around telling about what's going on. We, we want to just get it right under the yeah. radar, and then, um, and then I'm sure that uh, we find ways of of getting the best out of it for the community. Yeah. I mean, I am curious though, like how you scale the ingredients um, to create an affordable restaurant in that neighborhood. But I mean, obviously, you have you know you have your standards and you have integrity when it comes to like being a locavore and sustainability and keeping things seasonal. So I don't know, are there compromises when you choose what kind of ingredients you're going to be working with so that you don't, um, you know, it's, no, it's just I mean, still affordable uh, to the neighborhood? Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, first of all, it is a not-for-profit. It is not free uh, for us to kind of. Uh, do it this way, so it'll cost money every single year. But I, I see, maybe I mean, so far we have we have been loading in a little bit more than one million dollars, and, and that definitely cannot uh, do the trick uh, until the end. I believe we're going to lose something like four thousand dollars a year. But that's part of the project. I mean, yeah. if if you change, if you really do something great for Brownsville, that is worth much more than you know one million dollars. If we really impact, if we create hundred jobs, and 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 send all these people, you know getting their own enterprises or getting great jobs and make them proud, rebrand Brownsville. Um, so for me, it's not a problem to cook with the local vegetables. Um, few things grow in Brownsville. I mean, a wonderful lady, Brenda Duchesne, that we've been collaborating with since we arrived, has a, a large number of community gardens, but I suspect that she can grow everything for us. But otherwise, we'll lean... I mean, the guys who deliver from the three-state area vegetables for us in, 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 in the Midtown will probably help us out out there. Huh. Um, I'm not so worried about the cost of, of doing that right. Mm-hmm. Um, vegetables will always be cheaper than meat. <laughs> yeah. And you also have a bakery? And we, we, open a, we open a bakery in Williamsburg in, in three, three weeks. We have actually just had our bakery popping up in, yeah. a, lo- in, a, in a space called Marco's Patisserie that we took over a, half a year ago. And just kind of operated easygoing. And, but now we come, it will be a, a real Myers like the ones we have in Copenhagen. Artisanal little boutique bakery with his own team doing everything from scratch, including milling the grain every day. Wow. So there are many different opportunities. There are a couple of restaurants also, but <laughs> it's still a bit too early to speak too loud about them. But, but there were also within, before Christmas, and a couple of restaurants will have opened also. A couple of restaurants? Yeah. Not just one. No. And it's June. So, but you said before Christmas, <laughs> so that's a. But he is, which brings us back to like, how are you? How? how? Do you have time? Like, what is what is your day like? Like, what's your day? Just give me your Any morning day. routine on it. I mean, it is day. too much, and but, but I mean, <laughs> uh, and I also want to say that that the two restaurants here, I'm more in the capacity of um, a mentor and lead investor mm-hmm. and and uh, shoulder uh, in the lives of two wonderful, talented young chefs that. Uh, and I'm happy to help uh, with that, making their dreams come true. I think it's part of my obligation. Um, and I also think I'm good as, as being the investor. What, what are you asking? How my day look like? I get my six hours every day. I sleep at least six hours, sometimes That's even seven. <laughs> no, it's not, it, is, it isn't really enough, but it's okay. As long as you don't... Five is, is hard, but, but I mean, I'm sure many... I mean, so many people are working so hard in this city. I don't feel... What really stresses me is that I feel that I, 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 it's, it's so difficult to get it right. Also, you're a little bit perfectionist. Um, but uh, I haven't had, you know, many weekends where I've just been totally free of emails or any duties. I haven't had that. But I wake, I wake up at 6.30, maybe do a 
play tennis, swim, run, half an hour, something easy going. Um, eat breakfast with the family from 7.30 to 8, get the kids to school, and then work until some sort of evening meal is coming around. I'm cooking pretty much myself for the family. Maybe four, four days a week, I would say, and then three days we are eating out or having takeaway. That's not too bad. What kind of food do you cook for your family? I, well, I, I cook. I love to cook. I love soups. I have got, my two daughters have turned vegan. Wow. So I've got the one 10 and 13. First, the 13-year-old turned, turned vegan in, in, after have been here for six weeks. And then one month later, the other one turned vegan too. <laughs> so now I have to kind of... But, but the beautiful thing is that the one who's 10 years old, she's a pretty good cook. She's a pretty amazing cook. She cooks stews and stuff with chickpeas and split peas and beans and smoothies. And she makes salads. And, um, but otherwise, I, I, I help a little bit there also. So what do I cook? I, I cook a lot of vegetables, of course. I love you have this cut called... Um, uh, beef skirt steak, you know that? Mm-hmm. I love it. Skirt steak is my favorite cut of I beef. I'm not it. just saying that just to just to you know kiss your butt. It's amazing. It is, and it's so easy to cook. Bah, bah, bah. Uh, the you protein get, structure, and it's just the right amount of fatty. Throw it in a salad, you so know. Good. <laughs> so often I, I would make something, you know, like the Thai salad, just mm. with the naughty ingredients, mm. just with with the horseradish, mustard, apple cider vinegar. And raw onions uh, instead of going down chili cilantro way. Yeah. Um, I love to cook uh, lobster bisque, and you have got a good lobsters here. So I cook a lot of. Uh, I love to make uh, to kind of fry the raw meat from the lobster tail, but but then use the head for for a, 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 a soup that I pack with ginger. That, that one I, I go a little bit Asian. Pack it with ginger, cilantro, chili, um, lime, and lemon zest. And then balance the flavor with uh, acidity and a little bit of sweetness, and then loads of coriander root and, and, and leaves in the end. And then keep it to the keep it to the um, broth side. I don't I don't pack it with coconut oil or coconut cream or cream like in France. So I keep it either totally like a broth, like a ramen soup. But you can sort of have a, uh, imagine a great great lobster bisque that, that has the, the texture and the the mouthfeel of a ramen soup. And then That's really good. I'm doing that. I'm doing that this We're week. We're coming over for dinner. Lobsters are so cheap right now. <laughs> I'm totally we need to take that. a break, but uh, one burning question. Any advice for people out there who are going to Copenhagen and they desperately want to eat at Noma? How does one do that? It's difficult to get a, it's, it's horribly difficult to get a table. The, 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 the one trick is that the book opens up once a month, and, and then a lot of people, those who come into the system, they book too much more than they can afford because they haven't got the time to coordinate with their friends. So then they call up a couple of days after, maybe within the first week, eight, ten days, and cancel what they overbooked. And then the book kind of opens up a little bit. So in between the 10th and the 15th, it makes sense to to call the restaurant and see what, what's, what's happening. That's a great tip. That's a good tip. Excellent. We're going to take a break. We'll be back with the morning after quiz. Yeah. I held on as quickly as a human can. I'm proud it's melted away. 
back. It is time for the morning after quiz. Klaus Meyer, you're opening a community restaurant and cooking school in Brooklyn. Uh, but what do you know about oddball Brooklyn history? About what? <laughs> Just weird Brooklyn history. <laughs> you don't have to answer yet. You don't no, have to answer it. That was rhetorical. I know a little bit about the Brownsville history, <laughs> but not too much about the Brooklyn at large. All right. Well, I'm going to ask you three multiple choice questions, and you have to guess the right answer. But don't worry. This is absolutely the least important quiz of your life. <laughs> so, first, you know Nathan's Famous in Coney Island? Are you familiar with that hot dog stand? No. We'll talk about that after the show. You have to go with your family. Uh, so Nathan's Famous in Coney Island got its start selling frankfurters at five cents a piece, uh, half the price of its competition down the street. People were immediately suspect of this, so founder Nathan uh, Handworker, a, um, a Dutchman, did what to drum up business? A, because they were too expensive or too... They were too cheap. Too cheap. And they they were too cheap and people were like, I don't know about suspicious. that. Cut rate d hot dog business. So A, he hired attractive young women in revealing outfits that exposed their knees to bark at passersby, promising a kiss with every hot dog, which I think was pretty scandalous for the time. B... Planted young men in white coats to eat hot dogs in front of the store to show they were pretty that 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 they were perfectly safe and delicious. Uh, C had an animal carcass hanging in the store to show the dogs were made from all meat, solid muscle, and not secondhand awful, as the price might suggest. So which which was it? What did he do? So I will straight away carve out the third one. I don't think that's the one. <laughs> uh, I like to believe it's the first one, but um, I actually think it's number two. It is number two. It was he hired these young men to wear doctor like white doctors coats because like hey these young doctors are eating that's them hilarious. they must be healthy. <laughs> oh my god! It's like the original milk campaign. I know exactly. That's so funny. <laughs> So, okay. one, so one down. Yeah, one down. Yeah, one. So far, so good. All right. Brooklyn was its own township for 250 years before merging with New York City to become a borough. Uh, there was some reluctance for this. Uh, what, what was the name given to this merger? A, the great mistake of 1898. <laughs> Who would give it that name? Um, the people of Brooklyn, because <laughs> they weren't happy with it. Uh, B, the imperialist occupation. Or C, the big English grift. <laughs> I go for one. It is one. <laughs> really? Yeah, the great mistake of 1898. That's so funny. Brooklyn's been throwing shade at Manhattan ever since the very beginning. <laughs> that is such a little known fact. All I right. like it. Yeah. We should secede. <laughs> Now you sound like a Texan. I know. <laughs> Hardly. Okay. The Brooklyn Bridge was completed in 1883. What did the city officials do to show how sturdy it was? A, truck out all the gold from every bank in town, totaling 6,350 tons of gold on the bridge. B, let P.T. Barnum, you know who P.T. Barnum is? Uh, big circus. Barnum and Bailey Circus. Barnum and Bailey's Circus. Uh, big American circus. Uh, P.T. Barnum walked his troop of 21 elephants across 
the bridge <laughs> in like a big procession. C filled every square inch of usable space uh, with a parade of horses, buggies, cops, and like overweight aristocracy. <laughs> <laughs> I it must be the elephants. It's the elephants. Oh my god! You got <laughs> I Do we have a sign or a, a, like a sound effect for winning all three? It's like almost never happened before. This is, <laughs> this is pretty. Okay, you have. See, there yes. you go. You have officially conquered Brooklyn. Uh, I love Congratulations, Meyer. I think it's a sign of luck for me. I think, I think so. so. I think you are. You are the emperor now, but only because you've you've gotten all three. There we go. Well, Klaus Meyer, it was an absolute honor and pleasure to have you on the show today. Thanking, thank, thank you, you so for much. taking time out of your seven thousand projects. Me. You're very welcome. And Please you, come back again. And you did look, make me look smart. Yeah. Well, I think you did that on your own. <laughs> yeah. You didn't need our help. Thanks so much. You're listening to the morning after on Heritage Radio. See you next Sunday. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.